Why do I care? Oh, I guess I'm recording now. Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hirschnow. This week, Sean and I are talking about the Oscars, what we think they got right, what we think they kind of missed on, and whether or not any of it means anything at all. Heads up, this episode contains frank discussion on issues of sexual assault. If that's not for you, you might want to skip this one, or at least skip the section where we discuss promising young women. Either way, take care of yourself. Hey, Sean. Hi, Mason. Chris is off this week, so it's just the two of us. Sorry. Like the old days. Like the good old days. Six months ago. Do you remember, fans, our first few episodes? Do you remember our first season? I hope you do. Our 12-episode season. Yeah. Just like a season of prestige TV. Right. Like old HBO shows where you get only a, a few... A handful of episodes, and then when you get renewed, you get a full... Proper season. 20-episode docket. Yeah. Yeah. Except our our season will be closer to 50 episodes, I guess. The network loves us so much, they keep us coming back. (laughs) I guess so. Because I run the network. Yes! We got them in. Speaking of networks, today we are talking about the Oscars, which happen... When do they happen, John? I think next week we're essentially previewing it because we we are um, very determined to keep our end of the month um, tradition for our movie club because that is obviously much more important. April 25th will be the Oscars. So you'll hear this before then, thankfully. There's enough miserable things in life that we should have the excuse to not watch the Oscars if we don't want to. Not that any of us watch the Grammys for a Grammy episode either, so I don't know that it matters. Um but here we are. So, Sean, you have watched all but one of the nominees for Best Picture, correct? Yes, that was a fun project to self-assign. <laughs> so maybe we start there. Like, what are your... Because where this conversation is going to go, obviously, and this should surprise nobody who listens to the podcast, is the larger implications for the Oscars. But I think that this year, if I'm not mistaken, is kind of... I don't want to say special, but it, it's important because of how diverse the slate appears to be, at least at first glance. Yes. Does that bear out in watching the Best Picture nominees? Yes and no. I mean, I think the bigger diversity splash is that there's people of color that have a legitimate shot at winning, right? It's so weird that we like to pretend that every nominee has an equal chance, but it is a long-established kind of weird cottage industry where all the movie awards are some sort of collective report card or seance to guess who wins the Oscars. So this year, the the big splash in all four acting categories is that people of color have a legitimate shot at winning all of them which is good thinking about things like the fact no black woman has ever won a best actress Oscar ever is just like, okay, that's that insanity. Racism is a real trip y'all. But watching the best picture list, I found it interesting because I remember when it got opened up beyond five, it was for the sole purpose of kind of 
including blockbusters, I remember. I think it was one of the Christopher Nolan Batman movies didn't get nominated. There was a whole hullabaloo, and like the course correction was done to include more in that vein. So was that in 2008, around the Dark Knight? Yes, yes, around that time. It expanded from, because almost everything else is almost is just five or less, but the Best Picture nominee field was larger than that, and I believe it was done so that you could like sneak in blockbusters as well with all your art house. There's no big blockbusters this year, but we're all stuck at home. So it's the first year, I think, where I could have feasibly actually tried to watch all of them. So there's right. access in that and the the up, big uprising of Netflix, who just has so much money to burn to put out projects or distribute them. Where Netflix's money comes from is a thing of mystery, but... I think they just don't make profit. Yeah, I, I think that they are running on the Amazon <laughs> model, which is... You don't need profit as long as you have growth. <laughs> wow. I don't think I can apply that to myself, but... No, it doesn't work for real people. Um, <laughs> it only works for large, faceless corporations, which legally are considered people um, under the eyes of at least financial and political law. Yeah. So if we took a surface-level like diversity bullet point list at our nominees, we have The Father which is a white film about someone with Alzheimer's grappling with it. Judas and the Black Messiah, historical biopic about Fred Hampton, leader of the Black Panthers. Mank, which is ostensibly about the writing of Citizen Kane, so another Hollywood movie about movies. Um, Inari, which is a small family drama. Yes, it is about Korean immigrants. Nomadland is about a white lady grappling with life, and she's sad. Promising young woman is... Hashtag feminist in, uh, we'll talk about it. Um, Sound of Metal is drummer loses hearing, so therefore grappling with not being able to do his craft of love. And The Trial of Chicago 7 is actually around the same time period as Judas and the Black Messiah, another historical biopic about protesting. So yes, a slightly more, I guess, quote-unquote diverse, but yet still kind of falling into all the same tropes of what is Oscar bait. Right. I mean, it can't be ignored that this is an unusual year, right? Mm. There are a lot of Netflix movies on this list, which is Mm -hmm. new. You mentioned how how few sort of blockbusters there are, and I think that that is because in a pandemic year, there just weren't blockbusters. They all got delayed (laughs) um, because it turns out that those movies aren't good outside of theaters. (gasps) What? So we have kind of this unusual slate of And you sort of simplified them in some big ways. But a lot of these feel like indie films. Yes. And they're not. They're not actually small budget movies. Like they're they're large studio pictures, which most indie films now are as well. They make it to to theater. The ones that make it to big theaters do so because they have large financial backing. And the the idea of the indie film is kind of shaky now. But um, (laughs) yes. But they, they are concepts that are not. Big Hollywood movie concepts, right? I watched Nomadland last night, um, and and that one felt very much like it was sort of Oscar Beatty, I guess, because it's like a it's a drama and it's about older people and it's about very pointed economical critiques. But it it's about a woman living in a van after her husband dies, and like that seems like a movie that ten years ago you pitched to a big studio and it. It wouldn't get made. Yeah. Why don't we talk about Nomadland while we're here? Sure. What did you think? 
It's an interesting film because it um, it's so straightforward. Yes. Frances McDormand, who is, I think, one of the great American actors. Absolutely. Disappearing into a role and really just playing a person um, and, and does such a wonderful job of it. There are a lot of times, and a lot of the people that she plays opposite of in this film, with the exception of, of the, the male lead, most of them were just regular people. Yes, which is a trope of the director that she likes to do, Chloe Zhao. An Asian woman, which is also a big deal. Yes. And I thought that it was it was one of the most genuine films I've seen in a long time. It was heartbreakingly honest. It was a movie that all of the tension came from the fears that movies have kind of instilled in me over the years of like, how dark is this movie going to get? Is she going to be... It, it, it's a woman traveling by herself, and an older woman traveling by herself. Um, and so you you spend all this time wondering, like, is she going to be assaulted? Is she going to be robbed? What sort of violence is going to be inflicted on her? And that's where the heart of the tension of the film is. Right. In reality, it's just a movie about a woman in a van and all the people that she meets. So it is kind of deceivingly simple and complicated at the same time. But I thought beautifully written, beautifully shot, just really quite wonderful. Absolutely. And hearing that, like, Frances McDormand, I guess, because it's semi-based off a real-life book um, about this kind of nomadic lifestyle, and she, like, bought the rights to it and has been pursuing this project for a while herself. It's great, and you kind of feel that agency and honesty to pay a proper tribute or understanding and or of the subject matter is beautiful to see. Right. And I think with her in particular, like, and we have to be careful talking about famous people in this way, but I, I was reading an article about her and about making this film and Frances McDormand married to Joel Cohen of the Cohen brothers just lives in a small town where some people know who she is. Some people don't. And a what I understand to be a fairly modest house, and like she doesn't want fans, she doesn't want any of that. And so her like to come into this role felt a little bit different than say Daniel Day Lewis, mm-hmm. who makes a big deal about living in a role, and and he's an asshole about it, and and clearly playing it up. Like Francis McDormand, it felt like really good casting is what it felt like, but it also didn't ever feel terribly exploitative. Like it was it was fair to its to its subjects and and it felt fair to the subject matter and it it was not salacious in any way it was it was just a film about people which is what McDormand does best and i think that it really struck me that it, it doesn't it feels like a film that it's easy to say like this sort of stuff doesn't get made anymore it was a lovely reminder that not only does it still get made but it can get attention and um, rewarded accordingly yeah definitely especially like talking about the race um for most pundits it sounds like it's the one in the lead to win to win the big fish um in at the end of april so lots of good hope for that and what that possibly means for film i don't know does it mean anything for film (laughs) i mean we were talking about it before we started rolling right because it it's unavoidable We've chosen to cover both the Oscars and the Grammys this year as the two big award shows in their categories, you know, and, and it's notable that we didn't cover the Golden Globes because we only have so much time and an interest and interest and we don't want to bore you, dear audience. 
But we were talking about this before we started rolling, and that when it comes to the Grammys, there is, at least from my point of view, and I think it's fair to say for you, Sean, as well, the Grammys don't feel like they matter as much. Mm-hmm. They've never really affected the music that I listen to. They don't affect the music that almost anyone I know listens to. Mm-hmm somebody winning a Grammy, you might go, oh, maybe I should give that a try. But usually, like, you're aware of it anyway, and it's going to be something that you were going to listen to or not. Mm-hmm. The Oscars, and I don't know if it's because there is, by number, a lot fewer big-budget films made than there are, let's call it, big-budget records made, right? I think so, yeah. There's just less of a release. But when something was an Oscar, it becomes noteworthy, and you go, oh, maybe I need to check that out. So they feel more, I don't want to say more important, but they, I, I guess they do feel more important. They feel more relevant. It feels like it has a better, and they've been quote unquote working on it, like a better pulse of what's actually happening in the art form and in the industry than the Grammys do in many ways. Right. And and there also is less of a, I'm starting to say this and I am already disagreeing with myself, but there <laughs> there is a different facade about it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. With the Oscars, there is an understanding that, like, high art in film is high art in film. Like, the Avengers are not here, you know? Right. And, and that's it, because those movies are for a different audience. Right. Transformers is not going to win Best Picture. And, like, the films right. that do win Best Picture are for people who care about cinema in this particular way. People who refer to it as cinema, generally. <laughs> um Whereas the Grammys are trying to, have always felt to me at least, to be trying to uh, sort of pitch themselves as the finger on the pulse of culture. This is what good music in America is. Does that feel fair? That feels fair. And the, because it, it, all these institutions are old and crotchety, they are bad at it. <laughs> they like only incidentally, I feel like by accident, get it right part of the time. Or it's so inevitable <laughs> that the Grammys are like, well, yeah, who the fuck else was listening to anything but B- Billy Eilish, whatever year that was? Of course. I can't wait for enough people to listen to this podcast to start sending you angry emails about pronouncing her name eyelash. I keep doing it because I I jokingly call her booby eyelash because Because you have no I'm respect sorry. for a child. Obviously I am sorry, Billy Eilish. I'm sure you're real cool. Um you and your sneaker collection and your new blonde hair. What a big deal. Thank you. And your weird brother and your well-connected parents and yeah etc cetera, etc cetera. but also you know profit is somehow involved there is financial incentives to win an oscar for the performance of the movie right so on the flip side of this it it's still infected with all the same problems right is in that it is a large money machine that is built to continue producing large money and as we talked about when we did the the episode on uh, moonlight the oscars have the Academy Awards have a terrible history of celebrating films that celebrate Hollywood. Like La La Land. And Sean, you were saying that there was one this year as well, uh, Mank, correct? Oh, good Lord. Yes. Let's talk about Mank because you have some uh, very strong feelings about it. And I have heard from people who really enjoyed it. Um, so I'm I'm curious to hear your point of view on it. I have not watched it, and, and I'm not really familiar with the story either. 
behind it. So the movie ostensibly is about Herman Mankiewicz, who developed the screenplay for Citizen Kane. Um, but it is, of course, a snapshot of old Hollywood during that time. And honestly, a bigger portion of the film to me is about Hollywood's influence over California's gubernatorial campaign at that moment, because the uh, liberal bastion was um, Upton Sinclair, the author. And they were like, no, it commie, it bad, essentially. Right. Upton Sinclair, famous for writing The Jungle and a ardent supporter of uh, socialist ideas, particularly labor rights. Um, but The Jungle, which really sort of blew the lid off of the horrific situations in factory canning and food processing, among other things. Very influential book in labor rights. Right. So it felt like more of the movie was somehow focused on um, the studio execs in MGM and uh, the, kind of their tango with that. Honestly, not that much is about the creative process about Citizen Kane, which is fascinating. It's kind of explained as though Mankiewicz is just a barely functioning alcoholic, like who's like a terrible alcoholic who um, is just, you know, so brilliant on his own that he just puts out this work. A classic Hollywood story. Mm -hmm. Also, there's that weird bit where he originally agrees to do the movie, um, but not get credit because um, what's his name who's directing it, you know, Seems very determined to keep appearances of brilliant genius who's done everything on, on his own, et cetera, et cetera. Um, <laughs> about, quote-unquote, the greatest movie of all time. <laughs> Sorry, Orson Welles. <laughs> what I didn't like about the movie, uh, besides it just purely not being enjoyable, which I think, you know, uh, entertainment should be enjoyable. Um, it's directed by David Fincher, who has a very signature language and style. He likes to employ great works in some ways, can be used in exhilarating ways. It felt like it just kind of muddied the meaning, the the mood and message of it, where it, it, it's all super surreal, but it's based on real people who are, a lot of them are one-dimensional characters where they just are literally like, put in the scene to spew. These are all my viewpoints of, of my entire character. That's my scene. Uh. <laughs> it, it's a real shame that Chris is out this week because uh, he is a big fan of David Fincher. We had this conversation off mic, I think, a few weeks ago about Fincher's films. And it's interesting to see him getting jobs like this. He also did uh, The Social Network, another... Oscar Beatty biopic. Right. Oscar bait movie, but also theoretically biographical picture about successful white people, which cast a bunch of white folks in the roles of people of color. Mm -hmm. And so David Fincher is a lot like David Lynch for me in that I understand why people enjoy him, I guess. And I liked Fight Club. I still like Fight Club. I think Fight Club is one of the best adaptations of a novel yeah in modern history at least and improves the ending of fight club mm -hmm. the book has a notoriously terrible ending and polanek thought that the movie did it better and i think that says something but you know fincher has that very definitive style a very definitive look and it works in a movie like fight club yes and it maybe works in dragon tattoo although i have my own opinion on the girl <laughs> with the dragon tattoo but in a biopic he always feels like a mismatch. 
Right. Yeah. Like both of those foam films you pointed out are meant to be gritty, are meant to have a lot of kinetic, physical motion, thing, big things happening. And this is a talkie, like, um, which can be thrilling, can be staged excitingly. None of the characters were likable. And I'm not saying characters have to be likable, but they were just so goddamn unlikable. And many of them's incredibly one-dimensional. I'm going to say that characters do have to be likable because like I'm thinking about the Sopranos, for example, Uh right? Which is a TV show about terrible people. Right. But it is, I love the Sopranos. It's one of my favorite television shows of all time. And part of that is because no matter how terrible the characters are, there's something about them that makes them likable. James Gandolfini. You you want to watch these people. Right. You, you want to watch and you feel, you feel sympathy for them. You know, like Tony Soprano is a deeply sympathetic character, even though he is a terrible, murderous human being. Mm-hmm. You know, like there has there has to be something likable about them. But when you present just people who are awful, that's why I couldn't, for example, watch Mad Men because everybody <laughs> in that show was just <laughs> a prick, just a terrible human being, and it was just a terrible show about terrible human beings being terrible to each other. So, um, how sexy. Little side note, yeah. I don't know why I've been soft-pedaling it. I hated this movie. It was very unwatchable for me. I'm not the Academy. It felt Oscar Beatty, but it felt like it never... David Fincher never adapted his style to best suit telling the story. Rather, just put imposed his style upon the story, which apparently gets many things wrong. <laughs> you know, whatever, or like distorts the actual story. I don't care too much about it because we'll get to it later about these other historical biopics. But like, this is not a, to me, too watershed of a moment in American history that is going to directly affect us now because if it's not something we're still grappling with now, beyond, yes, corruption exists, other larger organizations influence other larger organizations. Um, it didn't feel like at all, a, a, like, in its one-liner, it feels like it's supposed to be an Oscar movie one love letter. It doesn't really accomplish that at all. Um, the major female character played by Amanda Seyfried is so ridiculously one-dimensional and without any agency and power. Um, don't enjoy that. And Gary Oldman is does his darndest to make a horrible character as likable as he can in the way Gary Oldman does that. Right. <laughs> Hearing you sort of line it out that way, it okay, Citizen Kane, watershed moment in cinema. Yeah. But it is up against films that are about very important moments in US history. Right. And it's also up against films that talk about very difficult and far more important topics than watershed moments in Hollywood. Exactly. We have films about incredibly important moments in black American history, and we have Nomadland, which we talked about, which is about very important issues around economics and around survivability in the United States. We have Minari, which is about About the same thing. Mm -hmm. And even Promising Young Woman, which is about sexual assault and the ramifications of it. Right. So to to stick a movie in here about Hollywood feels um, tone deaf, very tone deaf. (laughs) They couldn't help themselves, though. I think, but right, and that's where we kind of expose the system where it feels like you check off Gary Oldman, David Fincher, 
about us, about movies, and they're like, it cannot help themselves, right? Like, the system exposes itself. It cannot help itself with something that checks off so many, so many of its presumptuous boxes that it just has to put it in there for a bajillion awards. Right. It's almost required that we have a movie about Hollywood in this category. Part of that is because Hollywood just keeps making movies about Hollywood. <laughs> but part of it, too, is that, like anything else, I imagine that if you are on the board that votes for Oscar films, like you're going to you're going to vote about movies that are about the things that you care about and are sort of about you. Right. Mm hmm. Especially, I think, Best Picture is the only open field category where every Academy member can vote for it. The rest are sequestered right to your your peers are voting for you, right? who are part of the Academy. Which, theoretically, means that people who know what they are talking about are voting in that category. I think that that is probably the argument that the Academy would make, is that People who are in musicals vote about musicals because they know musicals. And um, Michael Bay doesn't know anything about musicals, <laughs> so we're not going to have Michael Bay vote. Oh, God, 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 no. Oh, my God, Michael Bay making a musical sounds terrible. Or <laughs> does it? Or it would be so fantastic. Oh, my God, a Transformers musical? I cannot wait for that that second last number. That's the power ballad from... Megatron or whoever his name is singing about finding his true self and transforming. You know, Michael Bay made... I will write that. Michael Bay did make other movies other than Transformers, right? Yes. It wouldn't have to be a Transformers <laughs> musical, as wonderful as that would be. That's the one I want if he's going to make one. No, have you watched <laughs> The Rock? A quintessential Nicolas Cage film from the 90s? No. I guess you put that on the list. Where Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage have to break into Alcatraz because Sean Connery is the only person that ever broke out of Alcatraz and they have to, an <laughs> American general has taken over Alcatraz and is going to launch a chemical attack on San Francisco and they have to stop, you know, lots of explosions <laughs> and that oh my unlikely goodness. jumps and Nicolas Cage. So what I am saying is that Michael Bay has range and a Michael Bay musical could be about anything from exploding robots to exploding Alcatraz. Don't stuff them <laughs> into a little toy-friendly box here. Not just robots. <laughs> but you brought up something really excellent about Mike's tone deafness and I think we can take a look at two films on this list that are very much related to one another in terms of chronology and events that they kind of cover, Judas and the Black Messiah, which is about Frank Hampton and his betrayal by an FBI informant who joins the Black Panthers, and Trial of the Chicago 7, which is a, about a trial that a bunch of protesters who were protesting the Democratic National Convention and were anti-war, anti-Vietnam War protesters and kind of those ramifications um, <laughs> a, a file under just like Mank in so many ways. My quibbles with Mank, I have the similar issues with the trial of the Chicago Seven that is done, that is written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, who also has a, his own specific language and style. And we should point out, speaking of David Fincher, Aaron Sorkin wrote uh, The Social Network, which. Yes. This fascinating how these all these same big players who are run in similar circles, associate with them, one another, often get the lion's share of the attention. And right, there's a reason why successful people all know each other because they all vote for each other and they all huh. make each other's careers possible. Huh. 
Interesting. The American dream is not only dead, it never existed. <gasps> yes. This is an interesting story from a historical standpoint, the trial of Chicago 7. And it also feels very much like the kind of film that Sorkin would jump into, right? It is politics, and it is mostly people in rooms talking. Sorkin is famous for his dialogue, I guess. We should say at the top that both you and I yes. are, to put it lightly, not fans of Sorkin. Right. I don't, my ears do not perk up. I do not have deference for, oh my God, an Aaron Sorkin project, which I think gives me a more uh, like neutral eye to look at the film uh, or look at his work and be like, I can just judge it on whether or not I like what is in front of me. And I feel like his punchy, flashy style in this sense, it feels like it trivializes something that is very white, unsurprisingly. It is a ensemble cast. Yes, the system is corrupt, and it like it does it does its bare minimum job in showing that the system is corrupt. And these characters are ostensibly on trial because they are politically chosen. So they're trying to stamp out dissent and movement. The connection between Judas and Black Messiah and Trial of Chicago Seven is Fred Hampton gets pulled into being part of those who are part of the defendants group, even though he had. Almost nothing to do with that DNC protest, which is obviously an unsubtle movement by the government to try to ex- put him into it. But the biggest issue I have about this, the historical inaccuracy of this film, which it's a small detail, but in many ways it doesn't feel like one. There's an infamous scene and uh, part of this trial where this judge who is super corrupted, and I hope he's burning in hell if hell exists, um, literally has Fred Hampton bound and gagged, quite honestly breaking the judicial system. And the film posits this character's lashing out because um, a Black Panther member dies, which is not true chronologically. And the biggest thing is this character is bound and gagged, and the film portrays it as the U.S. government is successful in doing so, when, according to all reports, he was able to break out of these which, like, may be a small detail, but it feels a little ominous that it's essentially saying the U.S. government kind of succeeded in this moment in silencing a Black movement. It's just like, and it's also like, so why is everything else generally accurate? But then (laughs) the one part about race that you kind of are not making the, like, central part of the story, why is that the part you fudge for your own narrative purposes? And so much of the cast is is white, and and the big names are white actors, and and so it's it is, it feels like the kind of film that would have been celebrated much more so ten or fifteen years ago, um, but as progressive, right? But now it doesn't cut it. It's not doing its job. And the other like big, from what I read, like kind of weird historical omission is. Per, I guess, I didn't really realize that about criminal trials, the defendants allowed one person to give a statement after, as they get sentenced. And it's given to one of the, one of the defendants who's, quote-unquote, the most, like, following the rules, towing the line, whatever. And instead of giving a speech, a mea culpa, so then, you you know, give me not as bad of a sentencing, he instead reads out every single American who has died in the Vietnam War up to this point on record. Apparently, historically, 
A, they also listed every Vietnamese person who died, but that gets conveniently left out. And B, part of his final statement is he also addresses the judge directly. You know, you are part of the evils and ills with this society, and I hope you get stamped out. Which feels like a no-duh moment to include if you're gonna if we're gonna go for this big soapboxy moment that he especially the way he frames it such a big soapboxy moment but then leaves that out that feels like you're even missing the obvious low hanging fruit for the story especially with if you want to talk about tone and storytelling it becomes in the end a little bit like a lifetime special and it's I and mean, we did it y'all um, especially. Oh. <laughs> Just this twice. They read it, it goes to credits, yada, 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 and then it pauses, and then um, you hear the chant, we're all watching! End movie. So to give, to do it justice, we should talk about the situation around Bobby Seale and, and what happened in court. Oh, my apologies. Every time I referred to Fred ha- Hampton, I meant to be referring to Bobby Seale and his reaction to Fred Hampton, the lead chairman of the Black Panthers, being murdered. So, Seal was infamously ordered by Judge Julius Hoffman to appear in court bound and gagged. Seal would stand up in court and yell, I object, every day of the trial when they mentioned his name for the reason of his lawyer not being present during the trial. It's important that it is a constitutional right that you have representation in court, and so if your lawyer is not there, you are supposed to have access to representation you know, you have a you have a right to a lawyer. That is foundational. Right. He did not have a lawyer there, and so trial was going on anyway. He was not represented in court. Seal claimed he was denied his constitutional right to defend himself, and he was found in contempt. He was then handcuffed, leg cuffed to a chair, and tape was placed over his mouth to stop him from talking during court. Um, if that is not an egregious violation of constitutional rights. I don't know what is. And to have that played off in any way in a film, incredibly insensitive. If there's anything in this movie that you should spend a lot of time getting correct and accurate, it should be that depiction. Because that in and of itself, of a unrepresented black man being bound, literally bound and gagged in a U.S. courtroom is heavily symbolic, just on its own. So there's no need to adjust it in any way. And to do so really runs the risk, I would say, of undermining it and and misrepresenting possibly one of the most egregious parts of, of this trail. Absolutely. Right. And it's also like, you got to see it for like one scene, and then we move on from it. Which I don't think it was exact, like it didn't exactly happen like that in the court. And it just, it feels like it was like, oh my God, this is so bad. Anyways, moving along. Next part of the story. Uh, Well, and following that, the reason why this is the trial of the Chicago 7 was that Bobby Seale's case was eventually uh, separated from it. It was originally the Chicago 8, separated from it. He was tried separately. The government ultimately declined to retry him on the conspiracy charges. He was never convicted, but he was sentenced by Judge Hoffman, the same judge that ordered him bound and gagged to four years for criminal content of court, um, which was eventually reversed in an appeal, but here we are. Yes. It just handles it terribly. 
And it, it, it is pretty upsetting to me that that's the part they get wrong and could have been more of the focus of the story. But It feels like it's almost almost doesn't belong, right? Like it is the made-for-TV movie mm-hmm. that ended up in the best picture category. Ooh, if Aaron Sorkin had Twitter fans, they're not going to like us. Oops. Well, Anyways. Yeah. <laughs> He's an old rich white man. <laughs> Whatever. The West Wing was not that good. Let's just get that out of the way. <laughs> all of all of t- TV Twitter is going to c- be coming for you in your DMs. Anyways. <laughs> so, Judas and the Black Messiah is a interesting story. An angle that they're approaching where we're talking about an FBI informant who, uh, through circumstances of, you know, he, he done goofed in his life. And the FBI essentially corners him to being an informant because um, J. Edgar Hoover, who is the director of the FBI, finds that the Black Panthers are the greatest existential threat to democracy and all that. So the film centers around this informant who becomes increasingly uneasy with infiltrating an organization that he finds out more and more about being something for societal good. And what I think the film is most successful at is that because the character, Bill O'Neill, um, has uneasy motivations himself about this, you know, he the more he learns about the Black Panthers, he outright says, this doesn't seem like a terrorist group. This, You know, they, they are actively doing good for their community and trying to do good for society. We never... Exactly, get to see what his motivations are beyond survival. Um, we don't get humanizing moments from him. Um, he's he's understandably just in an easy entire film, and they do make a point of framing the story by ending with some real life footage of Bill O'Neill, where he gives his one and only interview about his experience as being an FBI informant. And when that documentary came out, he committed suicide. So it does. It doesn't place any judgment or any necessarily any subtext on it, and that's kind of the success of the film of not putting any judgment on that, but telling the story of that. And I think it gets like a I don't know everything about the Black, Pan- Black Panthers, but it gets like a, a somewhat nuanced take on um, Fred Hampton's politics. That he's not. He is not particularly excited or fond of in multiple scenes of like, oh my God, a black person's name on this school. Woo! He, his his goal is entire structural change. He puts out olive branches to other black groups. He puts out olive branches to a bunch of poor white Confederates, you know, pro-Confederate white people. So it like, it feels like it gets things right. It gives Fred Hampton moments of humanizing and believability as a, a being and a person. So it gets a lot of all those things right, which is like, like maybe black people really should be telling black people's stories. Imagine that. Look what happens when we allow people to tell their own stories instead of feeling like we need to tell the stories of others. I can slip in a little institutional critique time in here in that both Daniel Kaluuya, Kaluuya, who plays Fred Hampton, and Lakeith Stanfield, who plays Bill O'Neill, are both nominated in the Best Supporting Actor category when you could make arguments for both of them being Best Main Actor, which it's always been a question, you know, the delineation, like what is enough for either way, 
and it it's cynically they're put in a field that they have a higher chance of winning, which ooh, because like especially since these are the two main characters of the story, especially like with Stanfield is the story is centered around him being our narrator and he's the supporting actor nom. Yeah, I imagine that there are people who are far more qualified to speak on this than you or I, but I think that that's a really interesting point. What a what a weird cynical argument that here will make you best supporting actor because you have a better chance of winning in that category. Yeah. And that's how it gets from what I understand it's how it's submitted. So some studio had someone made that conscious decision. It's not the Academy watching the movie and then delineating. So especially since from what I've heard about this, and this is again a conversation we've had about art and what do we do with deceased artists is that um, Chadwick Boseman is a presumptive front front runner for a posthumous Oscar for his work in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And, you know. Right, and we've talked about that before and, and how loaded that is um it's much easier to give an award like that after a person has died it becomes symbolic around the person rather than their identity or or background um if chadwick boseman wins it's not just that a black man won but it's really that chadwick boseman won and that ends up being what the conversation is about which is not fair it's not fair and it the issue of whether or not he deserves an oscar is a entirely separate issue it's right you know, how, what what does it mean to give one to him now? And how much of that comes out of a feeling of having to? And, wh- and what's that mean, right? You right. know, Heath Ledger's performance in The Dark Knight was phenomenal, I thought. But was it yes. the best performance of 2008? I don't know, you know. Right. So these are things that will for, forever haunt the fact when we attempt to quantify, award, rank, art, everything, society in these ways. Um, I think I like this kind of flow of positive, negative, positive, negative. Let's move on to something I liked a little better. We can discuss a little more favorably. Um, I, I just saw Minari today, which, um, spoiler, we will, we will do a much deeper dive when we probably make it our movie club for next month. Because it's a film absolutely worth talking about, especially next month. It similarly in 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 its scale or what it attempts to do, like Nomadland, is not attempting to a tell a big important historical, entirely historical story. It's apparently semi auto autobiographical, um, but it nevertheless addresses larger things by focusing on a really human story about a Korean family who um, has already emigrated to America and has just recently moved to the Midwest because the father of the family wants to ambitiously start his own farm. And, like, kind of that is the basic framework. And the movie grapples with um, the interpersonal relationships mainly and how that kind of intersects with both American values and, and Korean values. And I think it's incredibly touching... Um, I was glad that was the last movie I watched, so I wouldn't be in a terrible mood recording this episode. And we will get into more detail about it on a later date. <laughs> Definitely. I think we should save conversation about that one for next month when we will be watching it. But historic for uh, both an actor and supporting actress to get nominations. 
um, from this movie. Right. That should not be overlooked, for sure. Finally. (laughs) And also the controversy um, when it was, I think for the Golden Globes, it was put under best foreign film when it is literally about the American dream and made in America. Um, But it just happens to be mostly in, in and out of being spoken in Korean and some funky rules there. Right. American audiences famously do not enjoy subtitles for whatever reason. Reading is hard. Right, especially while watching a movie. So I I think that that area is very ripe for discussion, but maybe we bookmark that for next month. Yeah. Just one just posit that how come all the those British films are not which when all our awards aren't foreign films. Huh. Anyways, English. Wait a second. And we love the British monarchy. So I have, I guess if you want to call it hot takes about Promising Young Woman, with the fair warning that I am not AFAB. I was never I was never a woman, and I've never been perceived by the world as a woman, especially a white woman. Um, and I am tragically straight, overwhelmingly cisgender male. Again, no question about my gender identity. <laughs> Right, but the film at its core, or what it you know is about, is the main character's best friend gets sexually assaulted. No one believes her reporting of it, except for this our main character, and our main character essentially enacts revenge against horrid r- rapists, building up to specifically the rapist who did the act to her friend, and that's the point of the film. And in the process of her search for revenge, quote-unquote, throws their life away because all these people were in a medical school cohort together. And she instead spends her life meaninglessly working at a coffee shop and (laughs) playing gotcha. Uh, Service industry people, uh, you're wasting your lives. You do not matter um, unless you go to medical school. That's the whole point of story. End. As, As a former coffee shop employee... I can say from experience that you do not matter. (laughs) (laughs) We thank you for your service, Mason. Okay. I have two art degrees. Yes. Those are also meaningless. You aren't saving lives. So (laughs) I did not watch this film. The way that I consumed this film was Sean live texting me. Tweeting it. Texting, yeah. uh, Their opinions and the events of the film. This is a tricky one, right? Because on the one hand, it makes sense. It's a power fantasy, right? And Hollywood has a long history of male power fantasies. You could argue that the, particularly the action film genre is based on the idea of the white male power fantasy. And so to introduce a film that is ostensibly about a white female power fantasy feels very progressive. And I think legitimately so. It could be. I think that you could make a very convincing argument, and that that has been the arguments that I've seen in support of this film, that there is room for that power and violence fantasy. I think that the, I think the conversation worth having here is this is a this is a subject that needs to be talked about. This is a subject that needs to be addressed on film, um, and that has been addressed in film. Whether or not has has been done well or not is a whole other question. Um, but is it a progressive stance that instead of it being a, a male violence fantasy, it is a female violence fantasy? Right, and it kind of 
just takes a few steps away from jumping off that cliff in the sense that she's not enacting rape upon these people. She is pretending to be a vulnerable, drunk woman. And then right before they rape her, she goes, I'm not drunk. What now? And she keeps a little notebook of it. But eventually this film builds up to her attempting to enact a revenge on her friend's rapist. Spoilers. Goes awry. She gets killed. But she has made the contingency plan to make sure that these people are apprehended and then therefore put in the system. Okay. (laughs) The reason, as someone who has survived sexual assault myself, and as someone who watched this with someone who also survived it, it did not, like, the power fantasy did not feel rewarding. Um, (laughs) Let's see. It is incredibly white in that there are very few other people of color. Laverne Cox is here just as her pithy, Boss owner is like, why are you wasting your life? But, you know, to put a trans woman in such a minor role is, feels like meaningless representation points. Especially, like, a story about women being taken advantage of, I feel like, would be so much more powerful if it was told from a sex worker's perspective. Especially since, in many points, her revenge fantasy often hinges on her pretending to be a sex worker. Or pretending to be someone who has like interest in being so so it feels like very unsubtle subtle commentary that inexplicably drags down other minority groups other groups and it is the tone of it is confusing to me in the sense it is pseudo surreal the character all the men characters are slavish pigs with no subtlety and you're like yes men are slavish pigs but I don't think they quite talk like that as real humans. Like, so you, it feels like it muddies the waters because it doesn't, all the, the entire movie doesn't carry a, a realm of surrealism. It's just like, yeah, men just are like that. Anyways, the most interesting thing the film does is that she eventually reconnects with an old medical school classmate of hers and they become in a relationship, he's portrayed as, you know, one of the good ones, one of the good guys, until it, uh, one of the characters that she has coerced in, like, making her think that she got raped, but she didn't, but just made sure she felt like that and just didn't answer a call, which is, first of all, that is in itself is an acting terrible amount of violence. What the fuck does that accomplish? Anyways, that character gives her a tape of the rape, and it comes out her good guy boyfriend was there filming it. Or was right there when it happened and conveniently, you know, forgot to mention to her. So there, there's an interesting tension and pull there in comment about how men uphold masculinity and the hegemony of men to, because they think it's somehow a survival mechanism and they have the comfort to do so. That was something interesting and important to say. But surrounded by the rest of the garbage where it feels like she needs to suggest or trick people into it being threats of violence or threats of being raped or just threatening all the time, it feels like it doesn't accomplish meaningful steps towards addressing this problem besides just putting a woman in an odd seat of power. I mean, from the sounds of it, it is running into the issue of taking a incredibly complex and frankly nuanced issue of the cultural 
foundations of sexual assault. Yes. How do we, as a culture, get to a place where sexual assault is the issue that it is and so frequently goes unanswered? And it does the uniquely Hollywood thing of taking that very nuanced conversation and going, well, the answer to this is revenge. But as you pointed out, it highlights a number of issues like the fact that we don't talk about the role that our refusal to recognize sex work as anything legitimate plays in sexual assault. Or the fact that a majority of sexual assault stories that get traction are about white people and attractive white people, right? And this is a film about attractive white people Mm -hmm. who are successful. And that the anchor of this film would be that she's throwing away her life as a successful person by working in the service industry. And this is a woman who had a great deal of privilege, and that is important. But to have it anchor solely around that and orbit around that brings up a bunch of issues about representation and and the way that we talk about assault in this country of any kind. And that even when we try to tell stories that deal with these issues, we still don't address issues of sex work and issues of cultural and racial identity and the ways that those things, the violence that we commit against those groups furthers the violence that is committed by the group at large. Especially in 2021, there's no longer the excuse of uh, there's no audience for it. There's like, we don't, we're not ready to tell that story yet. We are more than ready. There have been plenty of films centered around more nuanced takes about race and and power dynamics. So there's time to talk about it now. And I guess more than anything, it's not the film's fault, but the quick label of powerful feminist movie is like... I mean, it, it runs into that issue that we talked a little bit about with A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which is the feminist label, and what mm-hmm. that can mean when it is applied broadly. You know, what what does it mean for something to be feminist? And what is feminism? What is successful feminism, right? I would think, and I don't think that I am wrong in thinking this, that for feminism to be legitimate, it has to include sex work and it has to include talks about race and about gender and about transgender folk. And, you know, and it has to involve the way that these systems commit violence against men as well, right? And people who are having legitimate conversations and nuanced conversations about feminist issues, including sexual assault, are covering all of those things. Yes. I I would be curious to see how the film would be different if, like you said, if it was about a sex worker, or if it was about a black woman, or if it was about an Asian woman, or if it was about a transgender woman. You know, like, there are other ways to make this film that I think, even within the power fantasy, that's problematic, and I don't think we talk enough about the issues around revenge pictures. Yes. Which we love in the United States. Who doesn't love a a good revenge fantasy? Right. (laughs) Even setting that aside, if you just allowed one bit of nuance about that main character, it could be a much more dynamic and a much more poignant film. She wouldn't be allowed so many of these abilities to pull from these power structures, so then they'd have to be more creative about her approach to this. So our last film, since... Neither of us have seen The Father. Sorry, Anthony Hopkins. Sorry, Olivia Coleman. Another story about an older person grappling with losing their facilities via Alzheimer's. 
I'm sure it had it was a beautiful acting showcase, but and maybe sorry. we'll talk about it later. <laughs> Probably not. But that leaves us with the sound of metal. This is a film about a person of color and a very serious film about music. Um, so you want to talk about that one real quick? We are going a little bit long here. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> Hope you liked all these hot takes. It ostensibly doesn't become about his race at all in the film, which is fine. Like, people of color are allowed to exist outside of just needing to be about their race or the film centering around that. I do want to put the caveat here that it needs to be noted that the fact that the lead in this film is a person of color, the fact that that is noteworthy is reason enough to examine it because... Right, absolutely. Like the, fa- the fact that I feel that I that, that needs to be brought up is uh, illustrative of the fact that this is a massive issue in all of American culture. Woo! No matter what yes. size role it actually plays on the film, we have to mention it because it's important. And it's only important because we keep making it important because we don't know how to handle ourselves. Yes. So the first half of this film is just... Um, f- fantastic to me we're talking about a drummer who is in a was really cool actually like noise metal noise noise art kind of band with his girlfriend um and it it becomes clear that he's losing his hearing rapidly to the point where he is physically unable to have a conversation with his girlfriend right in front of him so it becomes a, a quick examination of all the, kind of the worst fears of a musician. And it's important to note that he is a recovering addict who has been four years clean. So th- there's that extra layer of stress and temptation and tension that th- this character has to deal with in his psyche. And the first half of the film examines his, all of those fears happening and the, the grieving stages of refusal and then acceptance and then he um, joins a essentially a help group where everyone is deaf and are uh, taught to kind of learn to manage being deaf in a honest, heartfelt, unromanticized way. There was never, oh, these people are so special. They just are who they are. And it seems like the main character is eventually acquiesces and is willing to join this community and learn from everything. But the moment... He comes up with enough money to buy cochlear implants to apparently, you know, in his desperate return to go to normal. He then grapples with his entire, like, kind of livelihood and life with his girlfriend when their DIY music gets kind of broken because she gets pulled away from him and she's from a rich family. So she gets to essentially move on from it. It feels like she has moved on for it. And then the movie kind of shifts a focus to... Everything has changed no matter how hard I have tried to return to the status quo, and I'm going to have to learn to live with it, and I'm going to have to learn to live with myself. So Riz Ahmed in his lead role is fantastic in his portrayal of everything, as is the supporting actor nomination for the essentially the counselor, who is also deaf, I believe, in real life, So and does this work in real life, so has a genuine, honest understanding of this. And never, and the movie is very good about never making this a lifetime special. But the second half of the film perhaps feels like it needs to go for a sentimental ending. It needs to feel more singular and quote-unquote dramatic in a broad way that perhaps the first half of the film is um, more successful at not doing. Mm. 
they saw the opportunity for an Oscar and they went full bait. They couldn't help themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's an Amazon film, I believe, or it's distributed by Amazon. Jeff Bezos trying very hard to win the hearts and minds of <laughs> the world. The other like really cool thing for a movie about hearing loss is how it handles sound. And we get a lot of moments of hearing from our main character's viewpoint of impartial sound or lack thereof sound. And it handles that in a very thoughtful way that is immersive and helpful for the storytelling, which is great. Sort of addresses a, and I, I would be interested to hear what people on the deaf and, and hearing advocacy side of things feels about this film, because film is uniquely suited for exploring mm -hmm. issues like hearing loss um, and communicating it to people who can hear. I think film can do that in ways that no other medium can. And so it's a real tragedy that we don't have more films exploring that. And so when a movie comes along and does it, and not only does it, but is a good movie as well, can't be ignored how important having films like that is. Yeah, and little things like... As our character first deals with people who are signing, we don't get subtitles. We are also similarly in the dark until he begins to develop an understanding of the language himself. Yeah, it feels like a beautiful film, but somehow it doesn't it doesn't feel uh, as os it doesn't feel as Oscar Beatty until it does feel Oscar Beatty. And somehow because of that, it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel whatever that fucking means like an Oscar winner. Like it's not going to win best picture, but what the, what the fuck do I know about that? There's, there is what it is. It is put it this way. It is not my favorite of the selection that we have, but it is a, a, a beautiful piece of filmmaking. So to wrap up here, the question that has been on our listeners' minds, I'm sure, since this episode started is, uh, Sean, should anyone watch the Academy Awards this year? No. And there you have it, folks. Maybe watch one of these movies instead. Yeah. Watch these movies and argue with us about your takes on these movies. Right. Yeah. Um, pay for it, maybe. And especially, you know, if they come from sort of large studios, as all of these do to some extent, there can, there's an argument about whether or not they should be paid for, if it makes any difference, um, if you pirate it or not. I am firmly on the side of, you know, pay for these things if you can, if you have the means to uh, support people who make films. There are a lot of people who work on these things. And really the only thing that we 100% endorse pirating on this podcast is the entire Metallica discography um, for political reasons. So if you can, uh, watch one of these movies instead and don't watch the Academy Awards. Thank you. Outro theme music. It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually, did I stutter?